We're still kind of in the introductory part of this book, and uh, somewhat of today's message is still more introduction, and uh, really more than anything, an introduction to the first vision of the book, the vision of the Son of Man. And over the course of the next uh, couple of messages, actually this message and two more, uh, we'll be looking at this first of the visions in the book, and then we'll move from there into the individual messages that John gives to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And so uh, we look forward to that as I believe it will be insightful and I've enjoyed already uh, the study of these things. And so I'm excited to share with you many of the things that I've been learning. As you know, we live in a world where it is increasingly difficult to stand for biblical truth. It is hard today to stand for biblical truth and for the Word of God. More and more, there's a cost involved in doing so. You know, there was a time when you could greet somebody in the street, I suppose, and talk about the Bible or whatever, and talk about what the, the preacher said last Sunday, and they were probably at church too. But not so anymore. In fact, there's a growing hostility towards the things of God in this current environment that we live in. No longer does the church have the luxury of the acceptance of the things that it teaches and the things that it believes that it once did. You know, for two centuries, for more than two centuries of American history, and even before that in the American colonies, the church didn't have a lot to worry about. I mean, most people went to church. People talked about church. People lived by a certain accepted moral standard or moral code of things. But we have drifted quickly away from that uh, in the latter half of the 20th century. And now as we are well into the 21st century, those things are changing and they're changing rapidly. It is increasingly costing people something to identify themselves as Christians. You can't talk about things that, that were once uh, accepted and just assume that the person that you're talking to um, agrees with you on it. I mean, something is as basic as the definition of marriage, which has been held for, for centuries, for millennium even. But now all of a sudden, in a late-breaking development, that is under massive attack like never before. It's hard to talk with, with people today about, uh, about life issues and when life begins and the sanctity of life and that kind of thing. It's hard to talk to them about biblical moral standards on almost any issue because there's a wide range of opinions, wide range of teachings on these kind of things, although the Bible is the same. The Bible says in Hebrews 13:8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ proclaim that truth and we believe that truth. We try to live by that truth. But in the world that we live in, more and more people don't believe that the Bible is the word of the one and true living God. And so we're up against the wall, so to speak, when it comes to the world. But on the other hand, we know what the central theme of the book of Revelation that is, that Jesus Christ has already won the victory over the devil, over sin, and over all that plagues the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is His body. It has been said, as we think about these things, and as we think about the fact that 
more and more the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is suffering persecution and will see more persecution as time goes on. As we think about that, it has been said, if you're not having a head-on collision with the devil every day, you're probably going in the same direction that he is. And so that's something for us to think about. Back when Christianity was new, it was not very acceptable either. Now we think, well, you know, this is just the way our world is now. This is just the 21st century. And therefore, we can expect these sorts of things. Well, yes, that's true. But this isn't the first time in history that the church has been persecuted. In fact, going back to the earliest days of the church, we find that there was a massive amount of persecution. In fact, even far greater than what we see today and what we have seen yet now it may come to that we don't know how bad things will get before the lord returns we're promised that he will return but we're certainly not told exactly when he will return and we're certainly not told exactly how bad things will be before he takes his church out of here by way of the rapture now back when christianity was new it was not acceptable to most people either Everyone had an agenda, whether it was the Roman emperors or whether it was uh, people trying to sell things. You know, as you remember, Jesus cleansed the temple and uh, it was because that the money, the people were there and they were trying to uh, charge exorbitant fees for different things, animals that were used in sacrifices. They had an agenda. Remember, Paul talked about Alexander the coppersmith who did him much harm and it was because this man was an idol maker and what Paul was preaching was that people should not idolize objects of, of metal or stone or wood or anything like that. And it was about to put this guy out of business. And so all down through history, whether it be Bible times or all the way up to the present, there are those with other motives. There are ones who are, are seeking money. There are ones who are seeking power. There are ones who are seeking something, status in this world. And the bottom line for them is not biblical truth like it is for children of God, for believers, for Christians. The bottom line is always what does the Bible say? What does God reveal in His Word at the point of spiritual truth. And so we celebrate that. We, we rejoice in the fact that we have God's Word uh, to be the final authority for both faith and practice. But just understand, we live in a world that does not see things that way anymore. Not that they ever did completely, but increasingly today they see it that way less and less and less. Many believe we are headed back to a level of persecution that has not been seen since the days of the early church. And I would say that is a very good possibility. Some are even discouraged because of that sort of thinking. John wrote under the inspiration, though, of the Holy Spirit, even the compelling of the Holy Spirit of God, to offer encouragement to troubled Christians. People going through troubled times, he offered them hope by his words. Now, in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, John has his first vision of the book. And it's a vision about who else but Christ. And through that, God offers us encouragement. What better encouragement than for John to see the Lord Jesus Christ? And what better encouragement for us as His church, even nearly 2,000 years later, but to see a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where could we be encouraged. Other than through Christ. 
we're going to take a look at this vision, as I said, over the next three messages uh, as we finish out chapter 1. I invite you this morning with your Bibles open to stand with me as we read from Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Let us pray. Father, as we come before this text of Scripture this morning, we pray, Father, that you would open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to receive this message, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you're seated. Well, the first thing we see in this passage is this. We first of all see the setting of this vision. And that's very important. To understand the context of the times that John was writing in and to understand the environment politically, to understand the environment where the church was concerned, the church still yet in its infancy, um, in many ways was struggling to make its way in a world that was often hostile towards it, but yet a church that was very much invigorated, very energized, because many people were still alive that had been alive when the Lord uh, literally was upon the earth and walked the earth. There were still people alive that had first-hand testimony of these things, including the Apostle John, who had not only seen the Lord, he had been one of those twelve that had spent an unusually large amount of time with him and been with him, been taught by him, been discipled, by him, saw him raised from the dead, saw him and, and was taught by him right up until he ascended back up into heaven in the clouds. When John wrote this book, though things looked pretty bleak for Christians, why was that? It's because they were being persecuted. They were being persecuted from a lot of different places. They were being persecuted by the Jews. Uh, there were a lot of people uh, among Judaism that weren't very accepting of Christianity. It took a long time for, for that to, to, to even catch on at all. And as you know, it's never completely caught on because we know that we still have Jews and we have Christians that don't see to eye, eye to eye where the person of Jesus Christ is concerned. So they were being persecuted by the Jews. They were being persecuted by the Roman government. And this persecution was kind of being spearheaded by the Roman emperors. Now it is widely reported by historians that the Roman emperor Nero, which is probably uh, just about the most famous or one of the most famous among the Roman emperors you probably are familiar with somewhat, uh, who served from A.D. 54 to 68, that he ordered a fire started that ultimately burned Rome in A.D. 64. And he is said to have sang and danced while Rome burned. And hence the saying or the expression 
that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Now, to divert attention from himself, who else did he blame but Christians? He blamed Christians for doing this. It is said that he wanted to just see what it looked like on fire. And therefore, he ordered it to be set on fire, watched it burn, sang and danced while it burned, and then, to divert attention from himself, blamed Christians who are already hated by many anyway. Around this same time of persecution, uh, both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter were both martyred for their faith and for their stand for God. All of these negative feelings uh, tended to grow worse and they were getting worse as time went on, year by year even. Uh, And following the martyrdom of Peter and Paul, uh, their other disciples, the other apostles of the Lord also, were put to death one by one as martyrs for their faith and for their stand for God. In A.D. 81, Domitian became the emperor, and he hated Christians just as much as Nero before him. And also there were about five other emperors that served between Nero and Domitian. And so toward the end of of his reign, around the mid-90s, around A.D. 95 or 96, John came to be banished or exiled to the island of Patmos. Tertullian, one of the early church writers and historians, I think has something interesting. We can't verify this, but he writes about this and many believe this, that he claimed that the Romans had plunged John into a cauldron of boiling oil to eliminate him. But yet John came out of that unscathed or unhurt. And that was ultimately why then, after that happened, that Domitian banished him away, put him away on this island of Patmos, which uh, evidently was commonly used to send criminals away. It was sort of a prison uh, in many regards. It is widely believed that John perhaps lived to be in excess of a hundred years old. In fact, some commentators I read said that uh, probably 102 is a widely accepted age uh, that they believe John may have lived to. Can you imagine that? I mean, uh, the other uh, disciples of the Lord the, that became apostles died early on, uh, many years, decades before. And yet, this far away from the time that Jesus uh, had his earthly ministry and uh, was crucified, resurrected, ascended up to heaven, to think that that so many decades later, here is John, still alive, one of the twelve. It's really kind of an amazing thought that one of them lived so long, but evidently that is what happened. God clearly had a great purpose in mind for John. He used him right up until the end. Some of you, as you get older, you may think, well, you know, I I just don't have the purpose that I used to. I can't do a lot of the things that I used to. Well, look at what someone like John is still doing. Why? Because God was still using him. God still had a purpose for his life and was using him in a mighty way. And that's a lesson for all of us. As long as there's life, there's purpose. Many times, though, it is through the low points of our life that God speaks to us the loudest. 
And He does the greatest work in our life and and causes us sometimes to come up with the greatest things and see things the most clearly. I mentioned this last week or the week before, but John Bunyan, the author of, of the great novel Pilgrim's Progress, wrote it while he was in prison. Such a great work of English literature written while in prison. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you may be familiar with his name, uh, who was ultimately martyred for his faith during the Nazi Holocaust during World War II. Um, He was a professor and he was arrested and um, was ultimately martyred even just uh, a few days before uh, before the Allied forces come in and and put a stop to uh, the, the death camps. But Bonhoeffer, while in prison, wrote many letters, very important letters that were so good and and so encouraging that they were published in a book uh, that was called Letters and Papers from Prison. And still they offer encouragement to people today all these years after they were written. Think about in the Bible. Think about all of the Psalms that David wrote. David usually didn't write just when kind of everything was going good in his life and and he had something to celebrate. A lot of the things that David wrote, he wrote when he was in the depths of despair, when he was hurting. Like when Saul was out to get him and Saul, King Saul was out to kill him. And yet he writes so eloquently and he writes from the depths of his heart and he praises God. And he thanks God for all that he's done and all that he's doing. Think about all the great hymns that were written. And and, and I love these books. Maybe you've got one. Maybe you've read one at some point that kind of give you the history of the writing of some of these hymns. Um, Kind of the golden age of hymns was the late 1800s and even into the early 1900s. But um, it is utterly amazing. The background of some of these. Look up sometime about the, the background of the writing of the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Horatio Spafford wrote this after the death of basically his whole family. And yet he, he, he goes by ship out to the point in the ocean where they ultimately perished. And he stands there on the deck and he's able to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. And he writes this beautiful hymn. It's amazing what God can bring out of our heart in the times of our deepest hurt and despair. Well, John was not at the peak of life here. He was probably in his 80s, and here he is sent away on an island basically to die by the Roman emperor Domitian. And he could have very easily said, Oh, woe is me. But here, God through His Holy Spirit is giving him the capstone to the Scripture. The end of the book. The book of Revelation, which is the unveiling. How exciting. In verse, in verse 9, John says that he identifies with them in their tribulation. Tribulation. That's not a word that we use a lot in English. I mean, we, we talk about it at church. It's a biblical word, and so Christians talk about it somewhat. But most of the world doesn't use that a lot. Basically, what, revela- what tribulation means, as it's used in the biblical context, probably the best word to describe it is pressure. 
It's pressure. It is perhaps distress. We're in distress. We're under pressure. We're in tribulation. That was how it was used in a biblical context. If you want just a, a, an English definition, it means more or less the same thing. I think probably the biblical use is a little bit more pointed and a little bit more rich for us. But, but Webster's Dictionary says this. It says it's grievous trouble or severe trial or severe suffering. How is this word used in Scripture? Well, in John chapter 16 and verse 33, Jesus offers encouragement to His disciples. As He says, These things I have spoken to you that in, in Me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, He says. I have overcome the world. What a great truth. You're going to be under pressure in this world, he says. You're going to be in distress. You're going to be hurting. You're going to be wondering. But he says, don't fret about that. Don't worry about that. Don't lose any sleep over that. He says, I've already overcome the world. What more is there to overcome, by the way? Jesus is saying here, I've overcome it all. All of your stress, all of your worries... These little things that are keeping you up at night. He says, I've already come overcome that and everything else. That's what Jesus is saying. There in that promise, as John records it in chapter 16. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 22, Paul and Barnabas offered encouragement to new converts by telling them, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. You know what he's saying there? Life isn't going to be easy. But guess what? We're headed for eternity in the kingdom of God. Have you ever done anything that was difficult that when you got it done you were glad you'd done it because you, you liked being where you were at? Maybe it's building something. Maybe it was hard to get your house built. But once you move in, you arrange the furniture, you hang pictures on the wall, you sit down and say, boy, I'm glad to be here. And all of a sudden it's worth all the effort, all the stress, all the hard work of getting to that point. Maybe it's traveling somewhere. Maybe you go on a long trip on vacation or whatever. And you're anxious to be there, but you're so tired of driving. You're so tired of sitting around the airport. Or so tired of whatever. Travel can be hard. But once you get there and say, I'm so glad to be here. This world is that way. What we're experiencing now is the journey. We're looking around at each other and saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? We watch the news and we see how bad things are getting. And we see that morality is seemingly just out the window these days. And we're saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And we're remembering Jesus' promise. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The Lord's overcome it all. There's nothing that ought to make us sweat or worry. He's overcome it all already. These trials and these tribulations, these sufferings, they're said to build patience in us. James wrote in his epistle in chapter 1, verses one in, or in verses 2 and 3, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work in you so that you'll be perfect and complete. And you'll lack nothing. 
Patience is tough, though, for us to embrace. It really is. To try to be patient is one of the hardest things that we ever have to do. To wait and wait and wait. But we've got to embrace it. It has been said that patience is the ability to keep your motor idling when you feel like stripping the gears. And that's a pretty good way to put it. You know, patience just doesn't come to most of us naturally. Enduring trials that come our way is a prerequisite, though, for reigning with Christ. Romans chapter 8 and verse 17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together with Him. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul wrote, If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. We want to reign with Him. All of us want to reign with Him. But it says we must first endure in order to get to that point. We know what it means to pay our dues. We don't necessarily start out um, you know, in the top position uh, in our company or in our business or whatever our profession is. And we don't necessarily start out with the best salary and the best benefits. We start out down here low somewhere and we work our way up. And, and we're said to do what? We're said to have to pay our dues. Well, what we're talking about here, when, when Paul talks about and he writes about enduring trials, enduring tribulation, the ultimate reward is reigning with him but in the meantime, we've got to endure all of the steps that we have to go through before we get to that point. Now, the immediate suffering that was felt by John was due to his exile to this island, Patmos, in the Aegean Sea. That separation was probably worse because the number one thing in John's heart was to proclaim the gospel. He had seen this. He had known the Lord firsthand. He'd been right there and he'd seen all these things. He'd heard all of his teaching. He'd been through all these things with the Lord. And now all of a sudden he's put away somewhere. He's put on an island. Now, there may have been other people there. There apparently were other criminals that were often sent to this island. So here he is, he kind of has a forced jail ministry at best. Kind of a tough thing for someone who wants to boldly proclaim the gospel to everyone, calling upon them to repent. And he he can say, I've seen the risen Lord. You need to get your life right. But he's put away. He must have felt like he was put on a shelf. By now he was an older man. All of the other disciples had been put to death. The government was heavy upon his shoulders here, trying to get him to stop preaching. And now he finds himself in this predicament. What does he do? He was on this island, and he was there as a testimony, as a witness to the Lord. That was the only thing, that was the only reason why he was there. It was because he had borne witness and testimony to the Lord. There are many who think that if we're doing exactly what God wants us to do, everything's going to 
fall into place in our life and everything's going to be great. Well, sometimes it's not that way. Sometimes, by doing exactly what God wants us to do, we find ourselves being persecuted. We find ourselves in difficulty. We find ourselves in a bad spot. I've seen a lot of suffering. Maybe you've experienced a lot of suffering in your life. I've seen a lot of it. But many of those in the midst of suffering and in the midst of pain have the most praise to offer to God. I think about Johnny Erickson Tata, and you might have heard of her, you might have read some of her books back in the late 60s. She was a teenager and she was injured in a, in a diving accident and almost died. Uh, she's, she's a quadriplegic coming out of that. Um, wrote her famous autobiography, and, and I've read it. It's really interesting. You ought to read it if you get a chance. But she talks about just the mental turmoil and anguish, anguish that she went through, along with the physical anguish that she felt. She ultimately learned to paint. She couldn't, she couldn't hold a brush in her hand, but she would hold a brush with her mouth and, and ultimately uh, developed to the point where she could paint beautiful paintings that no one could hardly believe that she could paint the way that she actually did it by holding the brush in her teeth. Did far better than most of us could do if we were holding it with our, with our fingers. But she did this. She's written books. She, she speaks at conferences all the time. She's written hymns. But one of the interesting things she's done is she's written a book about heaven called Heaven, Your Real Home. Now think about somebody that has suffered a lot in their life. She has. She has really hurt and really suffered, almost died. And even went through a period of anger at God for letting this happen to her back when it first happened. But yet now can come back all the years, years later and write a book called Heaven, Your Real Home. It's amazing. But sometimes through our suffering and through our distress and through our hurt, God speaks to us the loudest. I found that to be true in my own life. Times that I just don't know what to do, how to handle something. You know, I come to God and I feel broken. And sometimes God, through that brokenness, speaks to me as, as though He's speaking to me with a megaphone. It's as though He's shouting at me. But you know what C.S. Lewis said? He said, pain is God's megaphone. And I think that's a good way to put it. Sometimes through our hurt, and it doesn't always have to be physical. Sometimes it's, it's, it's pain we feel in our heart. Sometimes it's, it's what we in our mind as we, as we pour over events and things and wrestle with them. Sometimes through that, God is speaking to us the loudest. He's speaking to us the most clearly. Notice finally here in our text this morning, the purpose of John's vision. And we see that in verses 10 and 11. The purpose of this vision. John was led to or he was caught up in the Spirit of God where he received a vision of things or a picture of things that no one had ever seen before. That's an exciting thing. It's hard in this world where it seems like everything's been done, everything's been seen, to see something that no one has seen before. But that's exactly what John got to do. Well, eyes had not, 
uh, been laid upon what he got to witness and then write about and describe. He tries his best to communicate the picture he saw by use of various symbols. And that's what we have in this book. Now, under the control of the Holy Spirit, he was transported in his perception beyond the normal human senses. Now, while in this state, God supernaturally revealed things to him, John received this vision on the Lord's Day. This was the first day of the week, or Sunday. That's the Lord's Day. Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, the first day of the week. The Jewish Sabbath, or seventh day, had been on Saturday. But the Lord rose on Sunday, and so the early church began celebrating the Lord's Day instead of the Jewish Sabbath. The loud voice is said to be like a trumpet. Did it actually sound like a trumpet? Is that what he heard was like a trumpet blast in his ear? What he's saying there is it was as loud, it was authoritative, it was clear, it was get your attention kind of loud. In that sense, it was like a trumpet. Something that was commanding. And the voice said to him specifically in verse 11, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write it down in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. God has had a message for these seven churches of Asia Minor. For Ephesus, for Smyrna, for Pergamos, for Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and for Laodicea. Now each of these churches received the whole book of Revelation. But each one received a special little message that was given by God to John and then John to them specifically, meeting them right where they were at. MacArthur notes, Those seven churches were chosen because they were located in the key cities of the seven postal districts into which Asia was divided. They were thus the central points for disseminating information. These seven cities appear in the order that a messenger traveling on the great circular road that linked them would visit them. After landing at Miletus, the messenger of messenger or messengers bearing the book of Revelation would have traveled north to Ephesus, which is the city that is nearest Miletus, then in a clockwise circle to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And copies of Revelation would have been distributed to each and every church. Now again, the Lord sought to encourage His church, and that is His purpose here. He used John as a vessel, or He used him as a tool by which to do so. And that should be our goal as believers in Christ. That should be our prayer. In fact, Lord, let me be a vessel. Let me be a tool that You use. Let there be purpose in my life beyond just trying to glorify myself or to accumulate things, or to gratify my flesh. But instead, I want to be used as a vessel to bring glory and honor to you, the one who created me, the one who died for my sins by shedding his blood upon the cross. God can always use people that are willing to be used. 
I don't think God has ever said to anybody, eh, I don't need you, I've got it covered. Everything's going to be okay. We've got plenty of people. We've got, we got a long line. I'll put you on the waiting list. I don't think God's ever said that to anybody. I think when people express their willingness to God, I think God smiles at that, and I think God says, I've been waiting for this moment. I knew it would come because God knows all things. And finally, you're where God wants you to be. So many of us, though, we live for ourselves and we live for pleasure and we live not even thinking about God most of the time. But God wants to bring each one of us to that place where we are like John. We are vessels ready to be used. We've emptied ourselves of ourselves and we're saying, Lord, fill me. Fill me. We have simply got to keep in mind as we go through Revelation that this book is meant to offer hope, assurance, and encouragement for us as believers, for all believers. Even though parts of it can be very confusing and difficult for us to understand, we've got to keep the big picture in mind, and that is is that God is victorious. And He gave us this book to encourage us. Not to confuse us, but to encourage us. And to the extent that we can understand what he's saying, it is meant to offer us hope, encouragement, and to give us strength. In God's big picture, this world is headed for a climax. It is headed for an end. It's not going to be here forever. In fact, its days are numbered. Are you ready this morning for the end of the world? What we see around us right now in this world is almost exactly what the Bible describes. In fact, the passage that Brother Milton read this morning uh, when he read Scripture up here spoke to that as loudly as any Scripture in the Bible. We see it all throughout. We see it in the words of Jesus. We see it in the words of the Apostle Paul. We see it in Peter's words, John's words. Every writer of Scripture, we see them predicting what we literally see when we turn on the news. It's an amazing time. It's a fascinating time. And it's only a scary time if you don't know the Lord. But if you know the Lord, you can sit back and say, Wow, just like the Lord said. Just like He predicted. Just like it says right there in the Bible that we've been carrying around for 2,000 years. Right there. Are you ready to spend all of eternity with the Lord? And that's something I can't answer for you this morning any more than you can answer it for me. You've got you've to go to the Lord and you've got you to deal with that. One-on-one with Him. Are you ready to meet Him? Is your life in order? Is your spiritual house in order? Let's pray together this morning. Father, as we come before you, we pray, dear Jesus, that if we are not ready to meet you, if we were to die in the next ten minutes, would we be able to stand before you with confidence and say, Lord, I did the best that I could do and I know that I did? Or would we have to stand before you in shame and say, Lord... 
I had your word. I had the promises in it. I had your truth in it. And I basically ignored it. Father, we we see things unfolding today uh, that are truly amazing. Just the stuff going on in the Middle East right now as we stand, as we, we are in gathered in this place is 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 amazing. The attitudes of people, the lack of morality. Father, the signs of the times, they all point to exactly what your word has said all along. Not only a little bit, but overwhelmingly. And Father, it's high time that we get our lives right with you. I pray this morning that if there's anyone who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, literally someone ready to meet you, their maker, I pray that today they would get their life right, commit their life to you and say, I want to live for Jesus Christ in these last days. Father, there may be a need for church membership. Somebody may say, Father, as the end of time approaches, I need a church home and I need to be plugged in and serving God right there. We pray that if you're leading anyone to come today, that they would not hesitate. Father, maybe someone needs to come and just recommit themselves, saying, Lord, I see the signs of the times and I work with a lot of lost people or I go to school with a lot of lost people. Help me to be a bold witness in these days to them. Whatever the needs are this morning, Father, we pray that you would meet them. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.